Um, with that, turn to Acts chapter 19. Open your Bible or, or turn it on or do whatever it is that, um, that you do. Tonight, uh, this morning, pardon me, we're going to finish up uh, chapter 19. Look at verses 21 through 41. And what a great week I think we had last week as we welcomed Chris to the pastoral team here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View. Uh, what a refreshing reminder, I think. I was so encouraged by that word he shared with us last week, just as we looked at Jesus and that first miracle he performed, turning the water into wine there at the wedding uh, in Cana. And what a great reminder, uh, I think, an encouragement of of what he can and what he will do in each of our lives as he take, you know, that gospel alone uh, changes us, changes our lives uh, from what they were into something that is even better than it ever was before. And so um, with that encouragement this morning, we're actually going to jump back into our study through the book of Acts, and we're going to witness an example of that very truth sort of being played out first on a citywide and then a regional, a regional, regionally wide, a region wide. Anyway, it happened in the whole region there around Ephesus. Uh, we remember we saw that there was this full-blown revival in the city of Ephesus as a result of Paul simply preaching the word there continually. And yet what we're going to see this morning is that so often as these kinds of massive moves of the Lord, um, so often they're not embraced by everyone. And that we're going to see that this revival in Ephesus ultimately led to a full-blown riot there in Ephesus. They went straight from revival to riot. And we're going to look at that today. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless his word and bless the rest of our time together. So Father, we thank you so much again for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study it, Lord. Uh, we pray, Lord, as we do each and every week, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here this morning, Lord, and that he would be the one to illuminate your truth to our hearts, Lord. We pray we'd be open to those things that you would speak to us today. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what a story, right, that we saw last time we were together in the book of Acts, looking here uh, toward the end of Paul's third missionary journey at that three-year ministry that he had there in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, that, that cosmopolitan, that commercial city there in Asia Minor, which is what we would now uh, call Turkey. It was that city right there at the crossroads of travel and of trade. It was a, a marketplace city and a center for government and a center for these Olympic-like sports competitions. And we saw last week that it was also the center for both idolatry and for a cult in the ancient world. It was nothing short of a demonic stronghold. Ephesus was the center for the worship of the Roman goddess Diana, or the Greek goddess Artemis, right? Artemis of the Ephesians, the goddess of fertility. And of course, not surprisingly, the worship of her was characterized by great sexual immorality. And so Ephesus was the center for her worship. And as well, there was this incredible temple that was constructed there in her name. 
And yet as amazing as, as we saw, it, it was here in this dark place, in this dark city, that the light of the gospel had really taken hold. And after a series of these, we saw these powerful demonstrations over the demonic, and we saw the burning of these books of spells brought there by all of the believers, and we saw that the church as a result was purified and that it was strengthened. And we saw the word of God running freely, not only through the church, but out from the church as they had this real power and this real influence. And in our very last verse that we read together last time, in verse 20 of Acts chapter 19, it said that the word of the Lord grew mightily and that it prevailed. And so now we continue, we pick up together in verse 21. We're going to see now as we watch Paul prepare really to move on from Ephesus ultimately toward Rome. So look what it says in verse 21. It says that when these things were accomplished, it says that Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So guided here by the Holy Spirit, we see that Paul purposed to move on from Ephesus. At this point, a work had been established and the believers had been strengthened and the Spirit was at work and it was time now, Paul sensed in the Spirit, it was time for the next chapter to begin. And in this verse, we have more than just a hint from Luke at what will be the focus of the remainder of the entire Acts account. This is Paul's first mention of his plans to go to see Rome. And of course, Paul wasn't talking about going to take in the sites, but he was talking about going there to give out in terms of ministry there in Rome. Of course, keeping with his very strategic approach in reaching out in these very central cities in which the gospel could be planted and then from which the gospel could go out and spread into the surrounding regions. And interestingly, one of Luke's primary purposes in writing Acts seems to be to trace the spread of the gospel just right up to Paul's arrival there in Rome, because Rome was the center of the Roman world. And many Bible students have observed how, if you look at Luke's gospel, it really focuses in on the city of Jerusalem. And then the Acts account focuses on that message going out from Jerusalem until it finally reaches Rome, the capital of the Gentile world. And we see that encapsulated here, both in this verse as well as in Paul's plans. We have these two very important cities, Jerusalem and Rome, that seem to be kind of the focus, the bookends, if you will, of the Luke-Acts accounts. Now, we know that there had already been kind of this growing community of Christians that had been established there in Rome, but Paul wanted personally very much to be able to go and to edify and to encourage them. And remember, in writing to the Romans, he said that he very often prayed, he said, making request, if by some means 
Now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Now we know that then Paul had very little idea exactly how it was he would get there to Rome. And we're going to see that the Lord did answer Paul's prayer. Paul did get there, but it didn't happen at all the way that Paul probably had expected that it would. So here's a spoiler alert, right? If you haven't read the rest of the book, Paul indeed did travel to Rome. In fact, he got there on an all-expense-paid kind of a Mediterranean cruise, if you will. And we're going to see in the coming chapters, he did travel to Rome, but he actually did it as a prisoner of Rome. And along the way, we're going to see that he's shipwrecked. He nearly loses his life along the way. And I think just what a great reminder, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, that God always does answer prayers. He always does accomplish his plans, but so often he does it in ways that are not at all the way we anticipate that he will. So for now, though this is sort of this first step towards this final stop, and we see that Paul here sends young Timothy, he sends this other helper, Erastus, on ahead of him to go into Macedonia, probably simply to prepare practically for Paul as he would pass through traveling back for what would be his final visit to the saints there in Jerusalem. But meanwhile, now with the two of those younger men gone, we see now that back in Ephesus, it says in verse 23, that about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Do you remember the apostle Peter warns us in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says that your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we know here in Ephesus where Satan hadn't succeeded through the use of deception. Remember how he tried to hinder the gospel through that group of those 12, we called them the deficient disciples that Paul had encountered as he arrived. And then we saw he tried to use those itinerant Jewish exorcists who tried to kind of duplicate Paul's power over the, the demonic. But it was at this point that we see the enemy now change the strategy, attacking again, no longer as just the deceiver, but now more so as a destroyer. He creates this great commotion, or there, some translations say there was no small disturbance about the way of Jesus Christ. It's that beautiful, fitting, and wonderful name that we've seen before that was applied to this early Christian movement, right? As they followed Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And so, as he so often does, we're going to see next that Satan found a very willing servant who had a hidden agenda, and so Satan's going to exploit those self-serving motives, and we're going to see him start to really stir up this group of silversmiths. Look at verses 23 all the way down to 28 with me. It's, I'm sorry, 24. It says, A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. And he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. 
And moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, that Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So Satan stirs up this entire group of Ephesian silversmiths, right? Probably the whole sort of the union, right? The trade guild, all of these guys, if you will. And he does it just using this one man, Demetrius. But he brought them to this fever pitch against the Apostle Paul, ultimately and simply for no other reason than because Paul's preaching was threatening their prosperity. You remember we said that Ephesus, of course, the center of the worship of the goddess Diana, the home of that magnificent temple that was built to her. We mentioned that it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And of course, it attracted people from all over the ancient world to come to Ephesus to worship her idol. And then to take home a little silver trinket to memorialize their experience with this immoral sex goddess, if you will. And what's ironic about this is that the actual idol of the goddess Diana was apparently unbelievably ugly. It was initially fashioned from kind of this chunk of black rock, most likely probably a a meteorite that had fallen, and the people believed that it had been sent to them specifically by Zeus. And it was right there where it fell in this kind of a swampy marsh outside the city. That's precisely where they built this gorgeous temple to enshrine this black hunk of stone. And so the people thronged there to worship it by the thousands. And I love the way that one author describes this. He says the epicenter of Artemis or Diana worship was a black meteorite that either resembled or had been fashioned into a grotesque image of a woman. The lower part was wrapped like a mummy, and the idol was covered with breasts, symbolizing fertility. And so the silversmiths would produce these little awful statues, which would be sold then by the thousands right there outside the temple. It's really no different than the scene outside so many of the world's top religious sites even today, where you can hardly get up to the building without wading through this sea of vendors who are selling a slew of trinkets and trash that sometimes even sincere pilgrims will purchase just looking for some sort of a connection to this thing that they believe that they are worshiping. And the problem here, plain and simple, was that Paul's preaching had exposed the worship of these ridiculous little man-made dead idols. It had exposed that for what it was, which was a sorry substitute for the worship of the true and living God who had created them. 
And so consequently, as people were coming to Jesus, right, in multitudes, their eyes were being opened, they were being enlightened by the Spirit, well, they naturally stopped worshiping this grotesque Diana. Of course, they stopped buying these little shrines that were associated with her temple. And so the bottom line was that this spiritual awakening that was happening there in Ephesus was so widespread that it had caused this business recession amongst the idol makers. Because the power of the gospel, their entire business had gone bad. And so they had to do something about it. Now, what's really interesting, I think, when we think about this, is that there are actually only two times recorded in this entire Acts account where we see Gentiles opposing the Apostle Paul. One of them is right here. And the other one, maybe you'll remember, was in that case of the Philippian fortune teller back in chapter 16. Remember that poor demon-possessed slave girl from whom Paul cast the demon and destroyed this money-making scheme that her masters were using her in. And so in both cases, we see that the opposition brought against Paul by Gentiles was purely because of these kind of vested monetary interests. Otherwise, the Gentiles had no argument with Paul. They had no argument really with Jesus until he hit them right in their wallets. And it's no wonder, of course, that Paul would later explain to Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we see over and over throughout history, the history of the church, we see that when God moves among his people and God's people become very serious about their own Christianity, that the effect, of course, is that that then emanates outward toward the community. And so revival in the church produces revolution around the church. And so often we see that it will affect the livelihood of those who kind of traffic and trade in vice and immorality because real revival causes real revolutions in the hearts of men and women. You think about the, the great Welsh revival in, in 1904 and 5. That revival was so great and had such a great impact that scores of taverns and pubs in Wales all reportedly went broke, right? Bar owners were furious. The courthouses, they said, closed because there were no more criminal cases to even try. It even affected the coal mining industry and led to a near shortage of coal in that area. Because apparently what happened is that when all the miners got saved, they all of a sudden had a big problem because they had to completely retrain all of those donkeys that dragged the heavy wagons full of coal out of the mine. Now, why would they have to retrain them? Well, it was very simple. When these rough, rugged coal miners were converted, they all stopped using profanity. And these poor donkeys were so conditioned to just respond to the commands of these foul-mouthed, cursing men that these donkeys didn't know now what to do. 
They didn't know when to go. They didn't know when to stop. They didn't know to turn right or to turn left until they were completely retrained to understand this kinder, gentler approach of these newly born again miners. You think about the early years of the Salvation Army in the late 1800s. And the Salvation Army was quite an organization who worked specifically to bring the hope of the gospel to the, the poorest and the most destitute and the sort of the lowest of the low that society had to offer. And they were so effective in their ministry that pimps and bar owners organized what was called the Skeleton Army to oppose the Salvation Army. They had all these threats of violence, and there were even a few Salvation Army workers who were murdered as a result. We think of the, it was the first great awakening here in our country in the 1730s and 40s. That's what first brought Christianity and hope to the slaves. It was the second great awakening then in the early 1800s. That's what inspired this new wave of social activism, which helped to pave the way for the eventual abolition of slavery. We fast forward now right to modern history. We have the Jesus movement, of course, of the 1970s, in which Calvary Chapel played such a prominent role. That movement provided hope, and it provided the gospel message to an entire generation of disenfranchised people and into that countercultural movement of the 1960s. And all of these people were getting saved, and they left the dropout culture and they tuned in instead to Jesus. And what we see in all of these different accounts is that the truth and the power of the gospel message had such a significant impact on the entire culture around it. And yet what we need to understand is that that impact came one heart at a time. And this is the very same way that the Lord is still changing culture and changing society today. I love what Charles Spurgeon commented on this. He said, I wish the gospel would affect the trade of London. I wish it might. There are some trades that need affecting, need to be cut a little shorter, not by an act of parliament. Let acts of parliament leave us alone. We can fight that battle alone but may it come to an end by the spread of the gospel. He said, I have no faith in any reformation that does not come through men's hearts being changed. And I, I think sometimes living in the time that we live, I think sometimes it's difficult for us to understand the really profound impact that the gospel has had on the cultures of this entire planet. Because understand that at this point in human history, during this time when Acts was occurring, there at the beginning of the first century, understand that the great majority of the world still lay enshrouded in deep darkness of paganism. You know, except for the Jewish nation itself, and there were an occasional few of the sort of more philosophically minded Greeks, but other than that, idols were worshipped literally 
everywhere. And all throughout the Roman Empire, the people were generally completely in bondage to these false gods. And so it was nothing less than the preaching of those 11 men there on the day of Pentecost that we looked at back in Acts chapter 2. That day was the beginning of the end of pagan worship and its dominance over our planet. And in just the 300 short years that followed that, that kind of pagan idolatry had practically been banished from all the civilized parts of the world. In fact, near the end of the first century, there was a very concerned Roman official named Pliny who wrote a letter to another Roman official named Trajan describing the problem that people were just not patronizing the pagan shrines anymore because of this influence of Christianity. And Pliny wanted to know what in the world he should do to try to fix this problem. Now, of course, we know that that underlying sin of idolatry hasn't been banished from the world today, especially in its more sort of subtle forms that we see it so often. But the truth is that wherever this gospel of grace goes, and when men and women open their hearts to receive it, you see that this kind of outright idolatry and so many of the horrible acts that go along with it, that has been destroyed. All of this to say that there is incredible power that's inherent in the gospel message to change entire cultures and to change whole societies. And yet I think for us as individuals, we forget sometimes that that very same power needs to be allowed to change our individual hearts first. You know, how has the gospel message really changed our lives? Right? Are the donkeys in our lives stopped because they can't understand what we're saying anymore? How has the gospel really impacted the way that we spend our time or our money? Right? Are those taverns in our lives completely closed because there's no desire and demand? Has the gospel really impacted our economy personally? The way that we spend our money, the things that we invest our treasure in? And, and I think that these are fair and I know they're difficult questions for us to ask ourselves from time to time. But they're important because if our life in the faith doesn't look any different than it did before we ever came to faith, then we have to ask the question, really, what good is our faith and what has it accomplished in our lives? How is the reality of our faith? How, how much have we really allowed the gospel to permeate our lives and to change who we are and the way we live or, or how much have we allowed the glory of Jesus to really eclipse and to drive out that darkness that our lives were steeped in. See, that's what was happening here in Ephesus and so much so that it had definitely caught the enemy's attention because Satan was losing the culture war in Ephesus. 
right? The status quo had been shaken up and revival had led to this real revolution and the local economy was being affected. Sales were down. The silversmiths were angry. The honor and the name of the false goddess Diana was at risk and he had to regain control of his slipping, you know, his slipping control. So what we see next, watch the way this initial meeting of the silversmiths now develops into this full-blown mob scene that just sweeps up the entire city as Satan stokes the flames and fires up the mob. Look at verse 29. It says that the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. And then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. So here, enraged at Paul because of Demetrius's speech, these angry silversmiths instigate this riot and rush into this Ephesian theater. Now, theater, really, the better word would be arena. This was a place that was capable of seating 25,000 people. It was the largest place for an assembly of angry people that they could find there in the city. And on the way in, because they probably couldn't find Paul, they just grabbed these two of his faithful helpers, Gaius and Aristarchus, and no doubt they sought to do some harm to them. What a scene this is. And yet, notice the way that Paul, when Paul looked in and saw what was happening, he saw this capacity crowd. And what Paul saw, no doubt, was another opportunity to preach the gospel message and to, to convey the hope of Jesus to these 25,000 people. And yet we see that the believers and some of these city leaders who were his friends wisely counseled him to stay away. And it was good counsel because we're going to see the situation now is going to go from bad to worse. So we've got this growing mob, 25,000 of these raucous rioters. They're rushing into the arena. Verse 32 says, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now, just in case we didn't think that the Bible spoke to our times. Let me read that last verse one more time. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. It was Benjamin Franklin who said that a mob is a monster with heads enough but no brains. And I love what, there's a, an author named Max Lerner. He was actually a Russian-born, uh, ultimately an American journalist. And he became kind of a controversial columnist, uh, columnist pardon me, for the New York Times. And he wrote this. He said that every mob, in its ignorance and blindness and bewilderment, is a league of frightened men that seeks reassurance in collective action. 
I don't, I don't think it's probably a surprise to any of us that one of our enemy Satan's most effective motivations is fear. And he will expertly exploit the worst fears that are inherent in human hearts in order to sow division and discord and to bring about chaos and to bring about calamity. And we remember what Paul would later write to the church there in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 6, he writes back, and he says to them that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And I think this entire scene is such a, a perfect picture of this truth. What's interesting is that to the Corinthians, Paul wrote this. He said, I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus. Now, we don't have any other record of Paul fighting with wild beasts in a literal sense. So many people suspect that what Paul was referring to was this actual event as he was doing battle with these beastly forces of darkness and he was you know that were fueling this formidable mob there that were opposing his ministry i think what we see here is that satan was desperate to prevent the establishment of a strong church in ephesus this city which had been such a stronghold of his for so many decades with the superstition and the idolatry and all of the magical practices that were going on because up until this point demonic activity had prevailed in Ephesus, but now the Spirit of God was at work through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Satan was not about to surrender without a fight. So he's fueling this mob with fear and with anger and with confusion. And watch what he does next, because he really brings things to a climax here, throwing in a healthy dose of racial prejudice. So we have this mob already dangerously in this explosive place. And look what he does. Verse 33, it says, and they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So what's happening here is that no doubt trying to appease the crowd, here this Jew named Alexander wants to make sure that the mob knows that the Jews didn't at all endorse Paul either, that they were actually in opposition to him the same way that this crowd was. And yet that didn't matter. Ultimately, this wasn't very well thought out. It's about to backfire on them because his very presence as a Jew just aroused this mad mob even more because the crowd knew that the Jews didn't themselves approve of any idols. They knew that they didn't themselves honor the great goddess Diana. And so just having Alexander there sent them into this racially motivated rage as they are mindlessly shouting, Luke says, for about two 
hours. Now, I looked up that particular phrase in the original Greek, and when Luke says it was about two hours, what that actually literally means is that these people were screaming for about two hours. That's a long time. And we think about this, and we think about, you know, that's just about inconceivable to us. If we hadn't been watching this very same thing played out on the TV night after night after night in city after city after city all across our country for more than 100 days. I think as a very similar, satanically inspired mob mentality exploits fear and anger and throws in that secret sauce of racial prejudice and it's driving people right beyond reason straight to destruction and to murder. And, and we can talk, of course, about all of the reasons that are behind this anger. And yet what I want us to understand this morning is that at its root is simply the evidence of a world and a culture that has replaced the worship of God with our own shiny new idols. We are simply reaping what we have sown for so many years. The, the bankruptcy of our morality and of our affections is starting to really show through. And we think about what it is that people are chanting today over and over and over. And it might not be something as seemingly silly to us as, you know, great is Diana of the Ephesians. But the things that people are chanting today really aren't that much different, right? Because people are chanting, you know, great is my political party, or great is my activist cause, or they're chanting, great is the consumer economy, or great is my material wealth and my pursuit of affluence. Great is my sports team, right? Great is my right to sexual expression, or great is getting drunk. Great is getting high. And any one of these things are perfectly accepted as valid life passions, and yet... If someone dare says, great is the Lord Jesus Christ, well, then we're the ones, aren't we, that are now looked at as somehow being strange or fanatical or just a little bit too extra. Because, of course, everything is upside down, isn't it? And I know, you know, if you're anything like me, I know that this continued chanting of the world uh, and its values for hours on end. I know that it can be deafening and I know that it can be a little bit disheartening as we watch so many people who just don't understand how under the sway and how swept up they are in this culture without even knowing it. We can only imagine the way the poor Apostle Paul, as he stood there next to this arena and he's listening to this madness for two hours. I love what one historian wrote. He said that the noise must have been deafening. The acoustics of the theater are excellent even today, and at that time were even better because of bronze and clay sounding vessels that would have been placed throughout the auditorium. How distressing that must have been. And yet I think that as we finish up our text, 
I think that we can continue to be encouraged because we're going to see the way the Lord now intervenes, the way that he protects Paul, and the way that he does it using the most unlikely and actually unwitting kind of an Ephesian government official. Because finally now, after this hours and hours of chanting, we're going to see the crowd quiet down. Look what it says just at the beginning of verse 35. It says that when the city clerk had quieted the crowd. Now, onto the scene steps this very prominent politician. Now, I think that the translation city clerk doesn't really do justice to what this man's position was. He was more so like the chief chief of the executive officer, if you will, of the city. He was really more so like what we would call maybe the mayor. He's the one that kept all the public records. He introduced business into the assembly. He, you know, any correspondence that came to Ephesus would, was addressed directly to him. And when he appeared, the people listened. They got quiet and appear he did because what we're going to see is that what he was worried about was the possibility of a full-blown riot complete with looting and burning things and what mayor in their right mind wouldn't want to do everything they possibly could to make sure something like that didn't happen in their city because if there's one thing that Rome wouldn't stand for it was civil disorder so let's move on. It says that the city clerk had quieted the crowd, and he said in verse 35, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. Well, this guy is good, right? He is a gifted communicator, a consummate sort of a spin doctor, an accomplished politician, if you will. He says, calm down. Hey, let's just, let's just take a breath. And then he assures them, in effect, he says, hey, Ephesians, you have nothing to fear. He says, let me be perfectly clear after all, right, everybody in the city knew that the city had been appointed even directly by Zeus to be the guardians of this temple. And then he implies, he says, you know what, the religious foundation that you stand upon is just as secure as the foundation of this magnificent temple of the goddess Diana. And there is nothing that could ever topple the worship of her. So he effectively tells the people that they're being foolish for making such a fuss over all this. He says, what could possibly go wrong? These guys are just the JV team. And then he goes a step further, and he makes a very important observation that I think is as significant for us as it was uh, insightful and truthful. Look at what he says in verse 37. He says, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. So he points out to the crowd, not only that Paul had not committed any kind of crime, but also he points out to them that Paul had actually never directly attacked Diana. And of course, we know that he didn't because he didn't need to. 
and this is what I think is important for us to highlight, is that Paul was never on a campaign to close down the temple of Diana. Paul was just doing the work of the Lord, and the closing down of the temple of Diana was just something that happened naturally, right? Supernaturally. Paul never organized anti-Diana rallies. He didn't picket the temple. He didn't stage any idolatry protests. All he did was teach the truth daily. He allowed the Spirit of God to be the one to compel and to send out the new converts as witnesses to these, the lost people in the city. Paul was on a pro-Jesus campaign, much more so than he was on an anti-everything-else campaign. And what's amazing, again, is that as we read the writings, as we read the, the transcribed sermons of these great revival preachers, or if we listen to some of the more modern ones, like listening to, to Pastor Chuck, one thing you find in common in this revival preaching is that it's not focused on what it is that the people are doing wrong. It's focused on Jesus. And you won't find that they were preaching against any specific sins specifically. They were simply preaching for transformation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that radical transformation came as the life of Jesus Christ started to be lived out through those people. And the very same thing will still hold true today. It's the very same way the Lord is still accomplishing his will. If you are struggling with a specific sin, if there's a specific behavior pattern that you can't seem to break your way out of, don't fight the flesh, but feed the spirit. So don't focus your thoughts and your energies on that specific thin, a sin and on everything that you think you could possibly do to stop from doing that. Focus your time and your energies on allowing the life and the power of Jesus to overwhelm your life and then watch those sins start to simply fade their way into the background and you'll also watch your witness to the world around you become far more fruitful and become more influential because we need to make sure as followers of Jesus that we are known exclusively for what we're for instead of being known for all those things that we're against. We are for Jesus and we need to allow him to handle the rest. People don't need heavy-handed sermons about their sin. What people need, they need a solution for that sin. Because by and large, and the people that you minister to, you know this is true, they already do know that the thing that they're doing is wrong. They just don't know how to get out of that cycle. They don't know they haven't experienced that life-giving power of the gospel of Jesus that's capable of dealing with all of those issues, not just of their behavior, but really getting at the root of the, the heart that produces that kind of behavior in the first place. So Paul hadn't preached against the false goddess Diana because Paul knew that he didn't need to. And therefore, it says in verse 38, the clerk continues, he says, Paul hasn't done anything wrong. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, 
The courts are open. There are pro-counsels. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. He says, hey, the courts, right, not the streets, the courts are the place for us to settle this kind of a question. For we are all, uh, for we are in danger, verse 40, of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we might give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So, specifically see this. God used the city clerk to calm the mob. He used it to end this immediate threat against Paul, <coughs> Paul and against those other Christians. I always love what it says in Proverbs 21.1. It says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God was the one once again, who had preserved his work and preserved his people, and he had used this godless politician to do it. And certainly we know that the motive for the mayor was just to keep the peace. He wasn't interesting in promoting any kind of truth. And yet notice the way that the Lord used even these misplaced motivations of this unbelieving, self-protective, prominent politician to accomplish his plans, to protect Paul, and even to promote the gospel in the way that he officially declared Paul and the Christians to be innocent of any wrongdoing. Now, as we close this morning, I just want us to consider one more time, just one more thing specifically that this very confident city official had said. I think that we can't help but notice how sure he was of the greatness of the goddess Diana. And ultimately, this was the thing that got the people to calm down, that assurance that there was nothing, there was no one that could possibly hope to interfere with all who worship her, let alone just this lone man named Paul and his few followers and this new thing called Christianity. And yet, isn't it ironic? This is a picture of the magnificent temple of the great goddess Diana today. This is all that is left. There's one partial column. There's the, the base, maybe, of another one of the columns. It's ironic, of course, that today there is no person living on the face of the earth who still worships the goddess Diana, at least not directly. And yet, there are multiplied millions today who live for and who worship the Lord Jesus Christ and who would gladly, willingly lay down their lives for him. It, the, the truth is that all idols, all false gods, whatever those are, those things that we have set up for ourselves in our lives, all of those things have expiration dates. But Jesus of Nazareth, he's the one who lives on forever. And I think it's interesting 
not only not only is the the worldwide worship of Diana of the Ephesians now completely gone but even the city of Ephesus is completely gone we might say that it went from revival to riot and now to ruin the city of Ephesus now as great as it was as important as a city as it was, it's now a place that's primarily visited by archaeologists and people who are on a footsteps of the Apostle Paul tour and want to visit the place where God had this tremendous victory on Paul's behalf. Here, the city of Ephesus, right, this satanic stronghold is completely gone and is now just a tourist attraction. It is a perfect and a very powerful picture of a, a very real reality in the spiritual realm. It's gone, and yet we see now that the gospel of God's grace and the church of Jesus Christ are still very much here and still very much surviving and are still very much thriving no matter what it is that the enemy can throw our way. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word, Lord, and we thank you, um, Lord, the way that it, uh, it speaks so clearly. Lord, it speaks right on time to the circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in. Father, we pray that we would take encouragement from this story, Lord, uh, just uh, the encouragement that you continue to be in control, no matter what it is that the silversmiths or the angry mob um, Lord, can, uh, can riot over and, and can chant about. Lord, we thank you for the assurance that you continue to be in control. And Father, we pray that you would give us peace in the midst of this. Pray that you would help us to be focused simply on the proclamation of the gospel of your son, Jesus. Lord, and, and for us to have confidence in the power that's inherent in that gospel to accomplish the work that you want to accomplish. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen. So we'll see some of you tonight, 530 out at the park. Bring the youth, uh, bring the kids if you can. Uh, if the air's bad for you, then stay home. Uh, we don't want anybody uh, in distress over being out there. Uh, but also take a look at those fall small groups. We're looking forward to a great launch of those this week. And uh, God bless you and may he pour out his grace upon you uh, as you go out and minister in his name this week. God bless.